Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. With me are Black classmates John Woodford, George Jones, Jerry Secundi, and Connie McDougall. I'm also joined by classmates Joel Huberman, Hampton Howell, Ron Blau, Jeffrey Fox, Alden Briscoe, Nick Bancroft, Ken Bannister, Peter Lassavoy, Elizabeth Woodford, and Marcy Benstock. Our guest is journalist, historian, author, and our classmate, Adam Hoschild. His best works include King Leopold's Ghost, To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914 to 1918, Bury the Change, The Mirror at Midnight, The Unquiet Ghost, and Spain in Our Hearts. He has written more than a dozen books. Well, it's good to be with you all. Uh, as for me, you know, I suspect like most of us, one of the most important things in my life was that uh, I came of age in the 1960s. I mean, I wonder as I look around the screen, you know, if we had all gone to Harvard 10 years earlier, who knows? We might all be hedge fund managers today or something like that. Instead of having done the various things that uh, some the wonderful work that so many of you have obviously done. So I think the time that we came of age was tremendously important. Um, you know, the Kennedy years were of such hope. The civil rights movement was beginning. You know, people that I knew at Harvard, you know, were going off at as freedom writers and so on. My roommate, Pete Delisavoy here, later went to the South as a civil rights worker. Uh, I myself did very briefly as well. Uh, and then since then, uh, I have spent most of my life writing in one way or another, first as a newspaper reporter, then as a magazine editor and writer. Uh, a couple of other people and I started Mother Jones Magazine and I worked there about 10 years. And then the last 40 years or so, I've devoted my time to writing books. Well, King Leopold's Ghost was a book that uh, I published about uh, not quite 25 years ago. And it's the story of King Leopold II and the conquest of the Congo. Uh, a fascinating story that I, one of the things that attracts me as a writer is stories that were once extremely well-known and then got forgotten because the whole process of forgetting, I find very interesting. Here's basically the story. As uh, many of you know, uh, especially Pete, who's lived in Africa and others of you, I'm sure, have spent time there, the European scramble for Africa, where the major nations of Europe essentially in a remarkably short time, divided up that continent among themselves. And uh, during the scramble for Africa, uh, one of the people ambitious to get a piece of territory was Leopold II of Belgium, who had taken the throne of Belgium in 1865 and found that it was 
not so much fun to be a king anymore in Europe because you had to share power with elected parliaments and that sort of thing. And he wanted someplace where he could rule supreme and make a lot of money. He saw this territory in the middle of the continent, uh, the Congo, basically the same area that today is the Democratic Republic of Congo. He hired the explorer, Henry Morton Stanley, to stake it out for him, travel through the area, sign treaties with indigenous chiefs and so on, but no idea what they were signing. And then King Leopold bamboozled first the United States and then all the major nations of Europe into recognizing this as his privately owned colony. It did not become the Belgian Congo until much later. Uh, for 23 years, it had the title of the Congo Free State, Etat Indépendant du Congo. And it was Leopold's privately owned colony. And during that time, he made a fortune estimated at well over a billion in today's American dollars from exploiting this territory. Uh, first by uh, extracting a lot of ivory from it. Ivory was a tremendously valuable commodity uh, in Europe and North America at that time. Uh, this was before the days of plastics and from ivory, you could make piano keys, you could make false teeth, you could make statuettes and jewelry and ornaments and all kinds of things. There was a, a, a tremendous market for it. Then uh, in the uh, 1880s, they invented the inflatable tire that was first used on bicycles. Then along came the automobile. So suddenly there was a worldwide rubber boom and people could make a lot of money selling rubber. Problem is if you set up a rubber plantation, it takes about 15 years for the trees to grow to maturity to begin tapping rubber from them. The people who could really make a killing were people who possessed land where rubber grew wild. And King Leopold had more of that than anybody in the world because roughly half the territory of his privately owned colony of the Congo was covered by equatorial African rainforest and there rubber grows wild. Uh, not as trees, but as vines that twine around palm trees and other trees up to where they can get some sunlight. So he was faced with the problem of how to gather this rubber, which was because these vines were scattered very widely through the rainforest. And essentially he devised a slave labor system where his private army, 19,000 officers and men, black soldiers under uh, white officers, would go into village after village in the Congo. They would take the women of the village prisoner, chain them up, and you can see pictures of them in chains, hold them as hostages in order to force the men of each village to go into the African rainforest for days and eventually weeks at a time to gather a monthly quota of wild rubber. And only when they brought it back and satisfied their quota were their wives and daughters unchained and released. And then the next month, the whole process began all over again. It was an incredibly brutal system. Uh, the world knew almost nothing about this 
as it was uh, uh, during the first years of its existence. Then gradually information began to leak out. And the story that I told in the book is basically of the people who worked to make that atrocity known. Uh, one of the central figures was a young British shipping executive named Edmund Morell, who at the age of about 25 worked for shipping line that had the monopoly on all the traffic between the uh, Congo and Europe. And every couple of weeks, his company would send him across the English Channel to Antwerp, uh, the Belgian port where ships from the Congo arrived. And month after month, he saw these ships arriving at Antwerp with filled to the hatch covers with these enormously valuable cargoes of wild rubber. And he knew how labor intensive gathering wild rubber was. Uh, then he saw the ships turn around, sail back to Africa, carrying no trading goods, no merchandise in exchange, instead carrying mostly soldiers, firearms, and ammunition. And standing on that dockside in Antwerp, he realized he was seeing evidence of a slave labor system 4,000 miles away. It still gives me chills when I think of this guy having that realization. Uh, he then went to the head of the shipping line, said something is terrible, terrible is going on here. We shouldn't be a party to it. The head of the shipping line told him to get lost when that didn't work, uh, tried to pay him some money to shut up. That didn't work. Then the head of the shipping line tried to promote him to another job in another country. That didn't work. Morel quit his job and in the next uh, decade turned himself into the great British investigative journalist of his time, devoted himself 12 to 14 hours a day to putting this story of slave labor in King Leopold's Congo on the world's front page, pages. And like any journalist who begins revealing a story, he soon found that once he started to do so, other people with information that would flesh out the story came to him. Uh, among the key people were missionaries working in the, in the Congo. Uh, many of them Americans, both black and white, who had been eyewitnesses to this slave labor system going on, but hadn't been able to get anybody to pay any attention because they didn't have the savvy to get their stories on the front pages of newspapers in Europe. Morel knew how to do that. The missionaries became enormously valuable sources of information for him. Uh, one of them, a, a black American, William Shepard uh, in particular. There were many other people who also played a role in uh, uh, disclosing this story. And basically that was the story that I told in the book. Um, what's fascinating to me about it also is that, as I say, as I said at the beginning, it was once extremely well known in the first decade of the 20th century, it was the major human rights scandal in the world. Thousands and thousands of newspaper articles about it. Um, then it got forgotten. Why? I think in part because no country 
We certainly know this about the United States, but the same thing applies to you know a country like Belgium. No country likes to remember a painful, embarrassing, and shocking period of its past. Also, World War I began in 1914, and all of British, French, and American war propaganda was based on coming to the aid of poor little neutral Belgium, which had been invaded by the big bad Germans. Belgium was genuinely a victim in that war, but it certainly didn't suit anybody to remember uh, the terrible atrocities that the Belgians were accused of doing uh, in the years right before the war. So this stuff got forgotten. And of course, the story is much larger as well, because once King Leopold developed this slave labor system, uh, other European countries who had uh, uh, colonies in Africa that had wild rubber in France, Germany, and Portugal uh, adopted versions of the same system. So anyway, that's, that was the story that I tried to tell in that particular book. I have a little to add, which is that when I was reading your book, I mentioned it to my mother and she said, oh, yeah, she was completely familiar with the horrors of the Congo. She was born in 1999, I think. So she, she was close enough that she heard it, I guess, from her parents or from somebody. Um, so she knew about it. It was familiar. Was she active in a church? I don't know. She went to church, but I don't think so. I think she just knew. Because yeah, I, I, I mentioned that just because uh, many of these missionaries were such key figures and people in their denominations back in the United States. Often well, you know what I'm going to guess? I'm going to guess that Black Americans were more familiar than white Americans. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> That's yeah. going to be my guess. I'm sure you're right. You're right. There, there was, I mentioned one Black American, William Shepard, who was a missionary who played a, a significant role in this whole thing. There was another as well, George Washington Williams, uh, a very interesting guy uh, who was a Civil War veteran, first Black member of the Ohio State Legislature, uh, a lawyer, um, a historian wrote one of the uh, early works about uh, Blacks in the United States and Blacks in the Civil War, went to the Congo as a journalist in 1890, uh, thinking he was an entrepreneur as well. And he, he thought that in this uh, new colony of King Leopold's, which had only had favorable publicity up to that point, uh, that there would be opportunities for black Americans to do the kind of well-paying skilled jobs that they couldn't get here at home. So he went there with that hope, arrived there, found himself in the middle of this horror show and wrote the first comprehensive expose in English of what was going on there. It was published in newspapers, uh, it's an open letter to the king in newspapers, both in Europe and the United States. Very sadly, uh, Williams died of tuberculosis on his way home from Africa. Never got to write the book that he was hoping to write. Um, but he was really one of the first people to speak out. And I'm sort of interested in process. I mean, how do you do it? How have you done so much over the... Well, uh, I just feel very lucky 
to be writing books because it's a career you don't have to retire from. You know, if I had been a quarterback or a first baseman or something, I would have had to retire <laughs> a long time ago. Uh, but as long as I can uh, hobble to my desk, I can keep on writing. And, you know, if you're doing something that you love, and if it's what you do all day long, you can get quite a bit done. Uh, so really, that's where most of my time has gone for the last uh, 35 or 40 years. I do a little bit of teaching. I teach one class each year at the Graduate School of Journalism uh, at Berkeley, uh, which I quite enjoy. It's just a once a week seminar. The last few years, it's been for people who are also writing nonfiction books. We critique each other's work. And so I feel that sort of improves my own writing as well. For me, the problem in writing is not to get up and do it every day. It is finding the subject matter. I was just going to ask you. I was going to ask you. Like you uh, wrote Bury the Chains, which is another very interesting book about slavery. And I was wondering how you found your topic. Well, um, I'll tell you the story both for Leopold and Barry the Chains. For uh, King Leopold's Ghost, I was uh, reading, I sort of stumbled on these things by accident. For King Leopold's Ghost, I was reading a book on something else entirely. And there was a quotation from Mark Twain. Uh, and a footnote said, Twain said this when he was involved in the worldwide movement uh, against slave labor in King Leopold's Congo, uh, an event historians estimate took eight to 10 million lives. And I was startled by this because I'd been to Africa half a dozen times as a journalist. Uh, actually, the first time I went to Africa was with Pete Delisavoy here. We were both in a program uh, for high school students that uh, took some American high school kids to Africa. This was a year before we came to Harvard. I'd been to the continent half a dozen times. I thought I knew something about it. I thought I knew something about how brutal colonialism was, but eight to 10 million people died in one territory? I was astonished. So I went to the library um, and uh, have the benefit of being able to use the library at the University of California, Berkeley, which is a huge and wonderful library. And looking through general histories of Africa, I found that yes, you know, you look up the Congo, people do give that figure, 8 million deaths, 10 million deaths. Hannah Arendt and the origins of totalitarianism uses a figure of 11 million deaths. Some people say, no, it's only 9 million deaths, but all these deaths in this one territory, how the hell did that happen? So I was grazing along the bookshelves, and then I came across uh, a book written by this British journalist, uh, Edmund Morell, whom I mentioned, where he describes this scene of being on the dock at Antwerp, seeing these ships come in full of rubber, sail out full of soldiers, and having this stunning realization about what was going on. And I was riveted by this. And I knew that scene has to begin my book. Uh, and then I was sort of off and running. So 
And I knew I had a story because there was no doubt that about the deadliness of everything that had happened or that there were all these extraordinary uh, heroic people uh, who tried to bring it to the world's attention. <laughs> Some stories you stumble into in other ways. Uh, you mentioned a book, Bury the Chains, which was the one I wrote after Leopold. It's the story of the anti-slavery movement in the British Empire. And I had originally thought I was going to do uh, a biography of John Newton, who was the famous hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace and How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds and many other hymns which we still sing today. And I knew that John Newton had begun his life as a slave ship captain. And I thought, you know, well, there must be some sort of fascinating transformation here. There must be an interesting story there. So I started looking at material about John Newton and found that it didn't quite fit the script. I sort of wanted it to be, here was this guy who was in this terrible, brutal profession of working on slave ships, and then he'd seen the light and started writing beautiful hymns. But no, it turned out he had his conversion to evangelical Christianity uh, before he went uh, in the slave ship industry, uh, and that he left that terrible profession uh, not out of moral scruples, but for reasons of health. He'd had a, a, a epileptic seizure at sea, and he didn't want that to happen if he was on shipboard, and so worked on land. And that he never spoke out for the next 30 years against the institution of slavery until somebody came to see him, a man named uh, Thomas Clarkson, and said, uh, Reverend Newton, uh, we have an anti-slavery movement going now. You really ought to say something based on your own experience. And then finally, he wrote a pamphlet on the subject. So then I wondered, who was this guy Clarkson? And where did this movement come from? And then the movement became the story. And there again, I can't say that it's a story that wasn't known because certainly people in England know that the British Empire abolished slavery 25 years before that happened in the United States. But because a great many of the people involved in that movement were evangelicals, uh, people like Newton and uh, William Wilberforce, the best known person in the movement, it's a story that was almost always written by evangelicals and written sort of put, to put God front and center. I wanted to write it to put community organizers front and center because somebody like Thomas Clarkson, who was the traveling organizer for this uh, anti-slavery movement, who was not particularly religious, he was a community organizer. He was somebody doing the kind of work. He would have been working with Marcy Benstock if he'd been alive today, uh, trying to stop Westway. Uh, I just found that a, a lens through which to look at that story at that time that uh, I found fascinating. And, um, and that book has had an interesting history, which I never expected. You know, the story is all about what happened in Britain between 1787, when this anti-slavery movement um, 
burst into life quite suddenly. And 1833, when uh, Parliament finally voted to end slavery in the British Empire, it took effect five years later. Uh, you know who's reading a book in part because of who invites you to come and talk about it. And for the first five or 10 years after the book came out, uh, all of the invitations I got were to come speak in somebody's African histories class or black studies class or whatever. In the last few years, all of the invitations I've gotten to speak about that book have come from people working on climate change. Union of Concerned Scientists, 350.org, Sierra Club, other subgroups. Because climate activists see an analogy between the work that they're trying to do today, and there is no more essential work than that, and the work that these remarkable organizers did more, <coughs> more than 200 years ago trying to make the world think differently about something that up to that point, everybody took for granted. You know, very few people questioned slavery before the 1780s or so. Wow. So that's been fun seeing that book take a journey, which I never had expected. Gary. Right. <laughs> Adam, I'm just curious. I'm not gonna compare US foreign policy in Iraq and Afghanistan to King Leopold. On the other hand, I'd be very curious as to what your thoughts are on current U.S. foreign policy in those countries and perhaps Taiwan. Well, I don't have a solution to the Taiwan question, but you mentioned Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I think it is just astounding that the U.S. seems not yet to have learned that you know, you can't control what happens in a country on the other side of the world, even when you pour, you know, thousands of lives and billions of dollars into it for year after year after year. Uh, I mean, here is Vietnam, where the U.S. spent more than 60,000 American lives, uh, millions of Vietnamese lives, billions of dollars into trying to control what happened in that country. We failed. We invaded Iraq. Uh, we failed there. For 20 years, we were fighting in Afghanistan. We failed there. And yet people don't question whether the <laughs> United States needs to be spending you know, close to a trillion dollars a year if you take in all the veterans benefits and so forth on its military. Uh, they don't question our spending 50 or 100 billions on an intelligence apparatus that was unable to predict that the Afghan government would collapse in a matter of days rather than a matter of months. It is just insane to me. I, I think imperial folly lives on in this country. I, th I think for certain sectors in the United States, the 20-year war has been a great success. That is, you can't keep something like that going uh, at, at enormous cost unless somebody is benefiting from it. And yes, 
And you know, and, and the war, the war, it worked, kept the money, the defense contracts going. It was great for the military establishment, opportunities for promotion, for glory, and so on. So there, I, there was clearly there were there were groups who wanted to keep it going regardless of the outcome. Yeah, yeah. And that's going that can happen again because it the structures are still in place, and it will. <laughs> It goes back to Eisenhower and beware of the military-industrial complex. So, yes, was absolutely correct. <laughs> and it certainly applies to the climate movement now that several people are involved in, in that somebody's benefiting from it. And though almost everyone will say is worried about the climate some more than others, it's a minority who are holding it in place, but it's firmly held in place which yeah. is remarkable. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not like we haven't been speaking out about this time, this kind of thing for a long time. I mean, back in our Harvard days, uh, Joel, you were involved in Toxin, weren't you? Along with I was. Me and other people. And, uh, you know, we were uh, marching on Washington, calling for disarmament, uh, calling for a test ban treaty, which we got but we sure were not able to stop the, the military-industrial complex. So that fight very much goes on. Yeah, the signs of the fossil fuel complex are, are evident everywhere in current American policy, despite the Biden administration's professed uh, desire to transition rapidly away from fossil fuels the Biden administration's actual actions aren't supporting their claims, aren't supporting their, their professed goals. It's very frustrating. Uh, I, 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 I wonder, Adam, if, if, if one of your books, uh, well, you just talked about Bury the Chains, that, that seems relevant. I wonder if any of the other, your other books also might be relevant to ways in which the climate and environmental movement in our country could um, could learn from history. Well, I wish I had the exact right uh, movement in the past to point to and say, uh, here was something that fought for a good cause uh, and won, uh, and we can learn from it. I think the books that I've written, Bury the Cha Chains, comes closer to that because it is about the movement that did end slavery in the British Empire. We know, of course, all too well from experience in this country that, you know, just bringing an end to the formal institution of slavery uh, doesn't mean that we still aren't living with its legacy in many, many ways. And that is true as well for other countries throughout the Americas that also have that heritage. But that was a story of a successful movement. And I'll look hard for another one. But um, now, there's one aspect that you haven't mentioned, which was, although slavery was outlawed in Britain, London financiers helped keep the system in America afloat. They poured a lot of money into, into American slavery. Absolutely. British slavery formally came to an end in 1838, but... That, of course, didn't happen in the U.S. until the end of the Civil War, and in which Britain was very much entangled with the Confederate States and uh, sort of hoping for a Confederate victory. 
Because in all these stories, uh, I think, first of all, you can't get people to read a book of history unless it's got people in it. And right. God knows there are so many of us, you know, who studied history at Harvard and found that uh, uh, there are an awful lot of people who take an interesting slice of history and manage to write about it in a boring way. Right. And I think that often happens because they forget that history is made up of living, breathing human beings, right. bad ones, imperfect ones, mixed ones, like most of us are. Uh, and so I always try to assemble a cast of characters through whom to tell a story. Um, I think about, you know, I know several of you have been involved in film and TV production. I think about it a little bit in, in writing a book as I'm holding auditions for a cast. Okay, I'm going to write about King Leopold's Congo. I'm going to write about the British anti-slavery movement. I'm going to write about the First World War. Uh, all right, uh, I'm holding auditions. Who's going to make it into the cast? And it's a fun process. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned the First World War book. I think I had a more difficult time doing it in that book, but uh, I feel I was pretty successful in the end. Uh, I, I mean, I'll tell you about the process, the genesis of that particular book is sort of an example of how this process works. I've long been fascinated by the First World War for two very opposite reasons. One was the sheer stupidity of these boneheaded generals from both sides who week after week, month after month, year after year, sent these poor young men climbing out of their trenches and walking, not crawling, not running, but walking into machine gun fires so that they could be shot down in huge numbers. And you're all familiar with the images of the Western Front in the First World War, and that's what happened for most of the time. Yeah. So I wondered, you know, how did these guys think? Um, why did they always think this next battle is the one that we're going to win, even though we're using the same tactics that didn't get us anywhere for the last couple of years? At the same time, I was also fascinated by the brave people in all of the warring countries who spoke out against the war. Many of them went to prison for doing so, but they sort of had the sense that this conflict is going to remake the world for the worse in every conceivable way. And that is indeed what happened. For the longest time, I couldn't figure out how to get these two very different types of people into the same book. Because I didn't want to do just a series of portraits of the generals and then a series of portraits of the dissidents. Uh, I couldn't quite figure out how to do it. I was focusing on England because the British anti-war movement was much more outspoken and forceful than that in most of the other countries. And I love writing about the British because they're just so eccentric. You always talk <laughs> people with <laughs> anyway, so for a year and a half, I did nothing but read, trying to figure out how I was going to shape this book. And then one day I was reading a very boringly written uh, scholarly article about a well-known British woman pacifist, uh, Charlotte Despard, who was an outspoken radical on every issue, went to jail four times in the battle for women's suffering, <laughs> traveled up and down England doing so, found her 
uh, rallies broken up by rock-throwing mobs and shut down by Scotland Yard. And in one sentence in passing, the writer of this article said, naturally, Mrs. Despard's activities were deeply upsetting to her brother. And it gave his name, Sir John French, which I recognized as British Commander-in-Chief on the Western Front. That's going to be an interesting relationship to look into to each other. So then about the next day after I discovered this, I realized, okay, I got to do this book based on divided families. So I went looking for other divided families, found a couple of them, and those three divided families or divided family groups are sort of the core characters in the book. And my rule of thumb was any other character, I can bring him or her in if they are related to one of these divided families in some way. So that was how I assembled the cast there. But it was a long process. I worked on that book for six years. You talk about uh, searching for the story for each of your books and then you know, a long process. And I'm wondering, is there a, an overarching thing for you that got you to be interested in the kind of writing that you do? And I'm wondering, is there something in your background that set you up for this kind of, uh, of writing? And I'm saying that having just read Half the Way Home. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think all of the books I've done have in one way or another involved um, people fighting against injustice. Uh, to me, those are the stories that I like to tell. And I think it does come out of uh, some things in my life experience not that I experienced injustice myself in any way. I think I've experienced nothing but privilege in my life. But some of it had to do with the times in which uh, we were all born. As I mentioned earlier, you know, coming of age in the 1960s, experience with uh, Pete Delisabor here as a high school student of going to Africa and to the American South uh, at the age of 16 and coming face to face in both places with a kind of injustice, uh, segregation in the South, apartheid in South Africa, uh, you know, that really opened up to me something about how the, the world worked. And as I wrote in my, my book, Half the Way Home, which you mentioned reading, uh, there was a connection to my own family because my father worked for a multinational mining company that uh, had interests in mines in Central and Southern Africa. And I gradually began to realize that, you know, the money that enabled my parents to pay my tuition at Harvard and to pay for many other good things in, in my life came ultimately from the labor of African miners. And uh, so I think I had the advantage of understanding early on some of the fundamental inequalities and injustices on which this world is, is built. And that um, has led me to want to write about such stories. Adam, um, what you just said makes me wonder, uh, I, I imagine there came a time when your realization of the, <clears throat> of the source of your family's wealth became a topic of conversation between you and your parents. Um, 
I'm wondering what happened. <laughs> uh, it did. And you can find the full story in uh, my book, Half the Way Home, a memoir of father and son. Uh, it's a little bit different than you might expect because, because even though that was his role in life, my father was a, an executive of this big mining company, uh, he was a man of extraordinary liberalism. And the issue that uh, very often divided people in our generation from our parents, the Vietnam War, uh, he and I were on the same side. In fact, he was so ardent an opponent of the war in Vietnam that he won a place on Nixon's enemies list, which I'm sure all of you remember. And he actually told a newspaper reporter that he was proud to be on Nixon's enemies list. So we disagreed about some things, but not about a lot of other things. And uh, figuring that out, figuring out some of the contradictions in him and so forth was... Uh, took uh, a lot of time for me, but uh, I think I finally figured them out and tried to express them uh, in this book. Well, well Adam, how did, how did Harvard prepare you for all this? Or, or did it have any, I mean, what was the effect of Harvard? Well, gosh, I would love to go to Harvard all over again today because I would think I would get so much more out of it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, during the time I was there, I had all of the, you know, tensions and anxieties that uh, somebody in their late teens usually has. Uh, I, uh, I feel I benefited from some things. There are certainly some, you know, some professors, you know, who I, I felt very grateful to be in their classes and learn something from. But uh, I was very impatient to get out and into the real world. Uh, I got in with advanced, uh, advanced standing in several courses. And so I stayed only three years uh, and uh, uh, left after, after three years. It was a lot easier to do those days than it uh, has been for the generation of our, our kids and grandkids. So I'm not sure I could say that Harvard has greatly, greatly changed me. I, to me, it seems like the, the formative experiences of my life happened before and after Harvard. I want to comment on one aspect of your work, and that is the art. I think you are a master at putting together scenes and even sentences and passages, and you keep us surprised often enough to keep us going and keep, keep us interesting, interested. So an applause for that. Well, thank you, Jeff. That's very kind of you to say. I think it's not that hard. I just think that a lot of professional historians are trained to write differently. You know, when you're uh, a young person hoping to get tenure in a department of history, say, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're trying to publish articles in academic journals and books with university presses. Yeah. And these are all read by uh, peer reviewers. And so you better damn well make sure that you've mentioned in the text works by the people who could possibly be reviewing uh, <laughs> your book. And right. it's really training in how to write badly, I think. So I feel <laughs> grateful never to have gone to graduate school. 
Uh, I never spent a day in graduate school. My graduate school was working as a magazine editor for 10 years, which is wonderful training because you're working with other people's articles and your own, trying to massage them into shape where it will make the reader more likely to turn the page. Uh, and I can't think of a better training for you know, the writing of books uh, than that. Right. So I feel that's where I really learned to do this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it all comes back to what my high school English teacher taught me were the basic ingredients in fiction, you know, plot, characters, scenes. Right. And you've got the plot, you know, an exciting story. A bunch of people managed to get slavery ended in the largest empire in the world. Uh, you've got... Uh, an array of characters, you know, uh, and you've got some scenes like Morel on the docks of Antwerp that we were talking about. Those are the ingredients that, that, that you need. And I think, you know, the same thing is true whether you're making a, you know, a Hollywood movie or a TV documentary or a radio documentary or anything else. These putting together these kinds of ingredients cross the line of, of genre. What are you working on at the moment? Uh, I'm working on a book and pretty near to finishing it about the United States uh, roughly hundred years ago, 1917 to 1921, which was a period which I think of as being the most Trumpian period of American history before Trump. That uh, was a time of uh, blatant racism in every possible way. More Black Americans died violent year 1919 than the preceding 50 years or so. It was a time of rage against immigrants. There were in the 1920 elections four major candidates for both the Republican and Democratic uh, nominations for president campaigning on platforms of uh, uh, mass deportation, promising to, you know, kick foreigners out of the country in huge numbers. Uh, it was a time of vigilante violence uh, when uh, you know, vigilante groups, not camouflage clad like the ones today, but uh, uh, the largest vigilante organization was actually chartered by the Department of Justice went around beating up people, arresting people whom they thought were possibly evading the draft for the First World War. So I've been fascinated by this time because you can see very rawly exposed some of the same things that we saw very rawly exposed during the, uh, the, the Trump years. Uh, there's actually, there was a portion of this book in progress that was in the preceding issue, but one of the New York Review of Books. And there was another part of it that was in the New Yorker uh, about uh, two years ago. Uh, and the book itself will be out in October of next, next year. What's the title? American Midnight. Have you uh, uh, looked at Wilson, President Wilson, and some of the contradictions of his hmm approach to international relations, for instance, um, League of Nations, promise of uh, 
self-determination of nationalist groups and then uh, reversals uh, um, that come practically um, from the time of Wilson uh, through the Second World War, for instance. Yeah, uh, was, have you touched on that at all or looked at that? Yeah, he, was, he was a major character in this book because he was president during the whole era that I'm talking about. And yes. he's fascinating and contradictory man. In many ways, he seems like the ultimate anti-Trump. You know, he was the first college professor or college president to become president of the United States. I think the only one. Uh, he was an intellectual who had uh, written uh, nine or 10 books by the time he became president. He was identified above all with this very idealistic uh, scheme for the League of Nations. Uh, but at the same time, he presided over a country where these horrible things happened and where he said virtually nothing about it. And it sort of reinforced for me the tremendous importance of what a president says or doesn't say, because there's sometimes when silence speaks so loud, so loudly during the so-called red summer of 1919, when hundreds and hundreds of black Americans in two dozen different cities were uh, uh, murdered by white mobs. Uh, these are called race riots, but they really should be called white riots. Uh, Wilson, only when pressed repeatedly, mentioned them in a single sentence. And he did more than silence, he resegregated. Yeah, he, he had he, active. Yeah, you're, you're right. The segregation within the federal government increased yeah. his watch because he and roughly half his cabinet were Southerners who were staunch segregationists. Um, and he was also silent uh, about the repression of speed, free speech that happened during this period. Uh, this period saw the most drastic censorship of the press that the United States has ever seen. Uh, and it was done initially in the name of uh, you know, fighting the First World War, but it continued for two and a half years after the war ended. Wilson said virtually nothing about it and presided over it. So a very, very contradictory man who ultimately I think, um, deserves the uh, unnaming of institutions that are named after him that in fact <laughs> absolutely absolutely am i remembering it would be better to be called pogroms which should not be an ethnicized term really they the uh, race riots were really pogroms yeah. Uh, yeah. also i think wasn't ike president of columbia or something like that yeah you're right yeah. He was the second college president of the country yeah wilson was the first yeah. Yeah. i'd like to pick up on kent's question. Uh, how about your post-Harvard uh, attitude towards your, your experience there and your, and your being a Harvard graduate? Well, I feel, you know, grateful to have had the chance to be at Harvard. I feel as an institution, it is still an incredibly elite institution. Uh, if I have 
extra money to give away, it does not go to the Harvard Annual Appeal. Me too. Um, somehow I suspect that may be true of a lot of you. <laughs> I think there are other places and other causes that can use the money uh, uh, more. Um, I don't know. I think that uh, Harvard is uh, institutions, not only an elite institution, but it's a tightly controlled elite institution. And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with what happened on the board of overseers, where once there was this, you know, in this last year, there's been this slate of people running for the board of overseers, the Harvard Forward Group, um, which I'm sure a number of you have supported, you know. Yep wanting to get people into that position who could push the university to divest from oil companies and that kind of thing. And Harvard quietly went and changed the rules that now make it harder for outside candidates such as that to even get nominated to run for the board of overseers. So they keep the control very, you know, the control is kept very tight, close to the vest. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. that's, that's, and of course, the Board of Overseers doesn't really have any power anyway. It's the corporation that really controls things. And that's entirely self-perpetuating. And one minor good act that we can do is to let Harvard know that we're definitely not going to contribute anything until they <laughs> divest from fossil fuels. Because yeah. that is unconscionable. And you know, people should let them know. Unfortunately, my non-contribution is not going to hurt them very seriously. <laughs> yeah, but you can let them know and they, they, they don't know how big your non-contribution will be. <laughs> so that's a good point. Well, folks, we've been talking for about an hour and a half and uh, want to thank Adam for coming on. Yes, thank you very much. Uh -huh. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you Adam. Pleasure to see all of your faces, some of whom I know, and most of whom I haven't seen for a very long time. And uh, we haven't changed. <laughs> and so, what? What? When is America uh, Midnight coming out? October of next year. Next great. year. Okay. Gotcha. You. Gotcha. You. That's great. <clears throat> all right, great. folks. Thank Good you. To see you. Good to see you, Adam. All right. Take care. Goodbye, everybody. Indeed, we have changed, and we hope to bring Adam Hochschild back next October to tell us all about American Midnight. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.